Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat if you'd like to. My name is Vanita Hill, and my family and I have been attending Genesis. Uh, it will be six years in January. We're going to be reading the um, passage that we're studying this morning that Mike will be preaching from. And if you have your Bible or an app on your phone, we'd invite you to open to Ruth chapter 3. There are baskets on the end of the rows if you do not have a Bible, and we'd love for you to not only use that this morning, but to take that home with you um, if you do not have a Bible. Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And Ruth replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all of my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if, he is, but if he will not redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring me the garment you are wearing and hold it out. And she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her, and then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, Naomi said, How did you fare, my daughter? And then Ruth told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest, and will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to see everybody. How are we doing today? Man, that wasn't very. We're a week from Christmas. So we got to get woohoos and like excitement. Are, are you done Christmas shopping? I have a stack of Amazon boxes at my front door. We can't get into our house anymore. It's just not possible, right? Uh, anyway, week left, couple things as you're thinking about this this week that we have for you today that we want you to go on the way out, go out and grab them, okay? First thing, I know you can't see these, but I'm going to hold it up. Uh, are, these are invite cards. Uh, there was a recent book written about the great dechurching of how uh, some, somewhere around 30 million Americans in the last 20 years have disconnected from church. And what they found, it's massive research work, what they found is about 70% of those who have left the church, if somebody would invite them, they would come back. Just that simple, okay? So that's what this is for, okay? Uh, our Christmas Eve service is fantastic. It is so much fun. 
We aim to be in and out in an hour, starts at five o'clock on Christmas Eve, uh, and a uh, lot of music, a lot of fun, kids are involved, we do, it's a family service, it's a great night, it's a great service to invite uh, family, friends, neighbors to grab a stack of these on the way out and just start giving them out. Make, make you know, any Christmas present you give this week, just include this in. You know, if you, if you make something for neighbors or for, for coworkers, things like that, um, grab a stack and just find a way to distribute them. Help us get these out this week to invite people to Christmas Eve service. Um, and then Christmas Eve morning next, a week from today, we are having a service, a morning service. It's going to be fabulous because our kids' ministry and youth ministry are going to take over the worship service, and they're going to teach the, the gospel project material for Christmas to the whole congregation. Uh, some fun music, some, some games. It'll be a different sort of experience for a, for a service, but we thought it would be a fun thing to do on Christmas Eve morning. So we'll have a morning and normal service in the morning, and then an evening service. We, we, we would love to you, for you to be at both of those um, and, and, and invite others to join us. The second thing is all through the Christmas season, we do this Advent conspiracy offering. Our goal is, is to, to be super generous. We know that as we're in here preaching the gospel, that there are people around the world who don't know, have never heard about Christmas because they've never heard about Jesus. They're in places where the gospel's never reached them, where the gospel has never gone uh, among people groups who, who have no gospel witness, um, and they don't have missionaries or anybody to share with them. And so during the Christmas season, Part of what we do is we encourage you to maybe downsize some of your giving, uh, the gifts that you buy, and upsize your giving to this offering called our Advent Conspiracy Offering that we give to international partners around the, who, who, who take the gospel around the world. And so we, we uh, partner with an organization that builds wells in the name of Jesus. We, we give a large portion of it to our partners at the International Mission Board that are sending thousands of missionary, missionaries to the hardest places. And then we have two families that we support, one that you will see this morning at the end of my sermon uh, that's in Cayambe, Ecuador, that part of this offering goes to. So here's the deal. Uh, one of the things you can do is um, if you want to like add to your gift uh, as you're thinking about generosity and say, hey, you know what, I've given, uh, you know, $100 or $10 or whatever it is, I've given a, a money in, the, in your name as part of your Christmas gift. That's a, that's a fun thing to do. Uh, we've got cards that are designed for that. The big idea is you they're back there on the table, um, and you grab these and give them as part of a Christmas gift and make a donation, f- f- you know, in the name of your family and friends as part of your giving to the Advent Conspiracy Offering. And then we also have these cute little gift bags. Um, these are, uh, especially for those of you with kids, a great way to let your kids get involved in this. Take the bag um, and, and just design it, you know, let them color it and have a lot of fun uh, as their birthday present to Jesus. That's the idea, right? Birthday present to Jesus. You can put your gift in here. And then during our Christmas Eve service, uh, you, there will be a, a specific moment where you can come put the bag uh, in the box that's down here as part of that. So that's all out there. Uh, that's too much time talking about that. We're talking about Ruth, this crazy love story that feels like it's an odd thing to do at Christmas, but it's kind of got this hallmarky feel. We've talked about this. Uh, and so it's like a, a hallmark story. But in the story, God is, is telling a grander story because this couple that we will find out has a really weird moment um, ends up being in the family tree of Jesus Christ. And, and they become the great-grandparents of this great king named David. And all through the Bible... One of the main titles that is given to Jesus is the son of David. And so this story gets us to David, which gets us to Jesus, which gets us to Christmas and wise men and shepherds. So it's a beautiful story for us to be doing during the Advent series season. And uh, it's, it's an interesting one. It's, a, you know, it's this, this story that, that is this budding love story, but it doesn't, like, it's like most great stories. It doesn't just go in a straight line and isn't always perfect. There are all kinds of obstacles in the story. And today is uh, no exception to that. So what we have so far, if you've been following along, is you have this, this woman uh, and man who left their hometown, left their people, kind of disobeyed God to do it, and moved to the neighboring country of Moab out of Bethlehem to, uh, because there was a famine. Uh, instead of trusting in the Lord, they kind of went the other way uh, and walked away and did some things that God actually told them not to do. Their sons married Moabite women, which they weren't supposed to do. And then all three men died. The, 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 the patriarch, the father of the family, 
who was Naomi's husband, died, and then the two sons, leaving these two, three women with no heirs, nobody to carry on the family line, nobody who could continue uh, owning and taking care of the family land. Now these, these three women, if they go back to Israel, are disconnected from the promises of God and the inheritance that they have. One of the women stays back at home, but two of them, Ruth and Naomi, go, go back to Bethlehem. Uh, Ruth has this beautiful moment in chapter one where she commits herself to Naomi, her mother-in-law, but not just of that, she commits herself to the God, the true and living God of Israel. But they go back, it's the barley harvest. These women are destitute and broken. And last week, we, we uh, hit the this, this story where it was the beginning of the barley harvest. Uh, so we're, the timestamp is it's, it's probably mid-April. And um, Ruth, knowing that they're not going to survive if somebody doesn't go get them food, says, I'm... I'm going to go into this horrible world where I could be abused and molested and raped, but I got to find someplace where we can, maybe some farmer out there will let me pick up the scraps of wheat in his field. And it just so happened that it, she ends up in the field of Boaz, who is, first of all, kinsman redeemer, which means he's in the family. He is eligible to, if he marries Ruth, he is eligible then to become the new patriarch of the family and include both Naomi and Ruth in the family line and access to like the family property that God has given them. And, and he is a, a, a picture of a faithful Israelite. He, he does justice, he loves the broken, he, he, he leaves the margins of his field so people who are poor can come pick their crops and have something to eat for themselves. He is kind and gracious to Ruth. He, you know, there are these beautiful moments where it looks like he's kind of maybe falling for her as he notices her in a field. They, they kind of have their first date. He, he, he invites her to a, to a meal and fixes the best and sits her next to him and promises that he will protect her. He will tell all of his men, don't you lay a hand at her and nobody's to make fun of her. Nobody's to tease her for being a Moabite, being different. He provides for her so that she can glean all through the harvest. So the rest of April, all of May, we're going to get, go from barley to wheat. We're going to get past the wheat harvest uh, and, and probably early to mid-June. Uh, and, and you're going to be able to pick all your crops. It looks like, oh, here it goes. But chapter 2 ends with this anticlimactic statement that anybody can understand once you've kind of grown up. It says, and she continued to live with her mother-in-law. It, it, that does not sound like, woo! That sounds like, oh, this is rough, you know? And, and meanwhile, they've gone a couple months, and the story goes, and Boaz didn't do anything about it. They're like, this beautiful first moment, this beautiful first date is not progressing. What's Boaz doing? Is, it, is the story going to end here? And, you know, she's thinking about all the Christmas songs she'd like to sing and how she'd like to, you know, and, and right now she's got this one song on her mind uh, and she's thinking about Boaz and it's, it's this song. Check this out. Now that's what she's singing, but, but Boaz doesn't act on it. So what are we going to do? What's happening here? How's this story going to go? We're afraid she might end up singing this song. Gotta love a little Elvis in the service, right? We may be the only church in America that played Elvis in the morning service, all right? Uh, and, and if something doesn't happen, she really could end up singing this song.
So what's going to happen? Well, what we hope is that the story ends up happy, happy and, and she gets to sing. Now, you may not be familiar, but this is my favorite song uh, that's not about Jesus at Christmas. Okay, my favorite one. Uh, we're hoping she ends up being able to sing this song. Your kiss is all I'm wishing for this Christmas. A kiss from you is all I really need. We'll turn the lights down low and hang some mistletoe and slow dance while the music softly plays. In my opinion, it's always a good day when you get a little bit of Stephen Curtis Chapman Christmas music. If you're not familiar, that's who he is. Guys, go find a song, sing it to your wife sometime this week. It's a great song, all right? Uh, but, but, you know, this story has kind of got this moment where it doesn't go as this hallmarky love story like you think it's going to. Because two and a half months, both Boaz doesn't move forward in any way. But they realize that not only are they looking, is, is there something beautiful about the love? Their whole redemption story is these two women who are desperate is actually in dire straits. If Boaz doesn't act, they're in trouble. And, and it's now the time for winnowing. Here's, we'll come back to this in the story in a minute, but here's why this matters. When that's done, Ruth and Boaz go their separate ways until next year. Um, so he hasn't acted when he's seen her every day in the fields. And, and I think we kind of get the hint that he's, not a hint, he's, the, he's an older guy. He keeps calling her my daughter, which is a reference that, you know, knowing that. And, and so I, I imagine he's a little intimidated. Here's this younger woman. She's, you know, probably out of his league. Uh, how could she be looking for a guy like him? Uh, he, you know, there's this, this, this uncomfort. And so what's going to happen? Well, uh, you know, it, 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 there's a jump start to it, a very interesting, weird one. We love these stories. These Hallmark stories capture our attention. We, you know, or at least some of y'all. I, I don't watch them, but, but, you know, these Christmas love stories, you know, uh, and, and those sorts of things. Uh, there's something that draws us in, right? And it, it, what happens is that we start watching these movies that have the Christmas themes, but especially when the Christmas thing is, theme is connected to some kind of love story, and, and we know it's going to end out perfect in the end. And it, it, it captures something that is part of the beauty of our humanity, that we are longing for certain things in this world. And there's something about these stories that makes us feel like, hey, this, the world could be this way. Uh, we, we long for love. We long to be loved. We want to know that we are honored and accepted, that there is a way to find meaning and purpose. And, and the world helps us point to the idea of love as a way to achieve that. And there's something beautiful in our humanity that relationships really do matter. We, we want the fairy tale. We want the happily ever after. We want the relationships. We want to find that person who completes me. You know, as, as I've heard some Christian women, you know, I am waiting for my Boaz. He's out there, right? And, and, and if, if we can just find that person. But even, you know, even if we are married, we realize that the Hallmark story is cute, but it never tells a whole story. There's always something that as much as we can love our spouses, there's something deeply broken and it doesn't completely fulfill all of the longings and wants and desires of our heart. But we, we want to feel like we are loved, that there's a really good ending to the story and that there's something that can fill our hopes and, and purposes. These stories draw us in because our hearts want to believe in that. And, and Ruth is that kind of story but it's that kind of story and more because Ruth is more than a story about Boaz and Ruth. It is about the rescuer redeeming God who is pursuing both of them. And he is in the shadows of the story, but he is the key character in the story. And so in the midst of this, what happens? Well, what we have is a story that shows up in three, three scenes here, but it's one of the weirdest moments in the Bible. Like it is just like if, 
If you were reading and you weren't paying attention, you may have skipped over it. But this whole plan Naomi comes up with, because, you know, I've heard people saying, I'm waiting for my Boaz. They did not wait. They went into full frontal assault. We're going to put him in a situation where he's going to have to choose something. And, and it's awkward. Like, if you don't see the awkward, you didn't read it right, okay? If you don't feel a little uncomfortable. And, you know, the, the challenges are they're actually a little bit of sexual overtones in this. And I, I, I think there's ambiguity in the text to help us wrestle with what's going on. Now, I think if there are, it's cultural because it, it is possible that Ruth was making herself available to him. But in the context of saying, we could get married tonight is kind of what's going on. Like, but it, there is this in the story, but it's just weird and probably not a good idea to try. But we have this, this amazing moment where God uses this to get this guy who just won't act and, and, and jump into this. And so uh, go ahead and look back at the story. Three scenes. The first scene is in the first few verses here. Uh, the first scene is here between Naomi and Ruth. And look what happens. She says, verse one, the Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well for you? Now, that sounds like, should I not find you a place to take a nap? Uh, I love that idea in my marriage, but that's not what she's saying here, okay? She, what she's saying is, the rest she's referring to actually goes all the way back to the beginning of the story where she looked at her two daughters-in-law and she said, don't go with me. I can't find rest for you. The rest she's talking about is a place in a family where they would be accepted and therefore they would not live as destitute beggars. She's like, I don't have any, I, like, I don't have any more sons. My sons are all dead. I can't produce anymore. The way it works in our place is if we don't find somebody to marry you, you're going to come destitute. And Ruth said, it doesn't matter. I'm going where you're going. I'm going to, your God's going to be my God. Now, chapter two, things look up. You know, Naomi says, my life is bitter. That's what I want to be known as. But in chapter two, she starts to see hope because God has put Ruth in the field of this relative who actually could fulfill this purpose. And, and so I think she's been looking for two and a half months going, all right, what's going to happen? And now she's seeing the urgency uh, of this eligible man in the family who's also an eligible bachelor. And the fact that he started, it looked like pursuing Ruth and nothing's going on. And she's going, okay, what's going to happen? She's, you know, we kind of have this moment. It's kind of like in the movie Elf, if you're familiar with the movie Elf, where uh, Michael, who is, you know, the Elf's brother, uh, is, is like in downtown New York near Central Park and Santa Claus is showing up, all this sort of stuff. And you have this reporter who's giving a report. And she, you know, she's just reporting and, you know, he's trying to go, no, it's the real Santa Claus. And he opens this book and it's supposed to be Santa's Christmas list. And, and he's reading off names and everybody's like, oh, the, the kids are going, oh, Santa knows what I want. But then, you know, she's like, oh, this is cute. But she doesn't believe him. Of course, she doesn't believe him. She goes, you know, where did you find this book? What is it? He goes, uh, what's your name? And she says, my name's Charlotte Denon. And he flips over to her name and goes, well, let me see what Charlotte, she, here's what she wants for Christmas. She wants her no good, miserable boyfriend to buy me a Tiffany ring and get on with it, would you? Like, that's what she wants. That's what's going on here, right? She's going, Boaz was supposed to do something. I have to find a way for us to not be destitute and desperate. And the way is through a relationship with Boaz, and he ain't doing anything. So here we go, verse two. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? Uh, with, with whose young woman you were. In other words, you were gleaning in the fields with his young women, the, the people who were helping uh, with the harvest. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. So, so here's what's going on. He says, okay, here's the deal. He's now winnowing. And, and, and the threshing floor was normally a place that would be on top of a hill so that the winds, the evening, especially evening winds would blow through. And, and the, the, the threshing floor is where you would take all of your grain. You would put your grain around it and then you would throw parts of grain on this, this floor that had a good, good rocky solid bottom surface. And, and you would spend like, first of all, all your grain would start getting dried out at, at the end of the harvest so it was usable. 
Uh, and then you would start taking pitchforks and you would throw your grain up and you would just spend all day doing this, throwing grain up in the air. And when it goes up in the air, the wind would catch the chaff, the stuff you can't eat, and would blow it off. Meanwhile, the grain, which is heavy, would fall right back down. And you just keep doing it. This is the way they're going to sort the chaff from the wheat it's, and, and, and the barley. It's the way that they're going to end up with the kernels of grain that they can use without all the extra stuff that they, they can't use when they're making bread and they're making their, their grains and they're making their roasted grain, which is a meal. Like they have to do this so it's usable. It was hard work on top of a hill in the, in the sun and in the summer breeze. And, and they're, they're, they're doing this. And he's like, he's up there doing this all day long. Go look for him. Go hang out and, and, and check and, and find him. But you keep a distance. Don't jump into this. Uh, this is hard labor. And, and so she says, when it's evening, uh, when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. So here's, here's what she says. Ruth, go take a bath. Clean yourself up. A- anoint yourself. Make yourself smell good. Put on, put on your, good, your good dress. Now, now, there's a couple things that are actually happening here. First of all, she is a widow. And there is a sense in which her mother-in-law is saying, Make it obvious that your days of mourning are over and you're open to a relationship. But he's also saying, and don't show up smelling like you've been in the field all day because no guy likes that. And show up, and then she says, when he gets done, watch him eat. Just pay attention, watch him eat his dinner, drink his wine because he's going to be tired. His heart's going to be glad after a hard, really hard day's work. He's going to go lay down. And she says, and pay really close attention to where he lays down. Because this plan will be weirder if you don't do that and you end up at the feet of the wrong dude. Like, like if, if the guy wakes up in the morning and goes, hey, who are you? And her answer is, wait, who are you? This is not gonna end well, right? And so, so she says, pay, pay close attention. And then she says, wait for him in verse four, when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Scene one, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, comes up with a weird and uncomfortable plan. When, when he's asleep, you go, uncover his feet. And this is where the text is actually rather vague. Is this hinting at something or not? And, and my commentaries, half of them were like, yep. And half of them were like, ah, maybe not. But all of them were like, but yeah, not something you should try at home. Like, like, we need to pause here and see that the Bible's telling a story. This is important. Um, One of the things I I always want to do is I want to teach you how to read the Bible for yourself. And the fact that 70% of the Bible is in narrative, it's telling us stories, is a beautiful thing. But if we don't read these narratives carefully, okay, If, if, if we don't read these narratives carefully, we will start doing with the narratives things that, that aren't the best because we need to understand, like understand this right off the bat. Just because the Bible reports it doesn't mean that God supports it. The, the best example in the Bible is the fact that we have all kinds of stories where polygamy has evolved. So you end up with all these multiple wives and you're like, like my, my response to all that is, I love my wife deeply. The idea of two or more to me is just insane. But... You have all these stories where polygamy is involved. And then it seems like God uses these relationships and the children from these relationships and blesses them. And so it'd be really easy to go to a story and say, here, God's plan, multiple wives. Let's do it. Let's, let's make this a doctrine. And there are groups of churches that have done that. The Mormon church has often read these stories and said, this is why we're going to marry a bunch of women. We're going to end up with sister wives and all that kind of stuff because it's in the Bible, right? Except if you read the Bible holistically, you read stories of stories, you begin to realize that first of all, in the second chapter of the Bible, God sets the, his prescribed rhythm for marriage. He says the man will leave his father and mother, will cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He lays the groundwork. And then every passage about marriage and sexuality after that, every passage that is teaching says, here's the plan. One man, one woman, one lifetime. But then we have these marriages. So what do we do with it? We need to realize 
that just because the Bible's reporting doesn't mean that God is supporting. It's telling us a story, and it's telling us about a sovereign God who uses our hot messes for his fame and for his glory. That's hope because my life's a hot mess, and I've made some really bad mistake, and God is still gracious and kind to his people in the midst of it. Which means we also need to understand that we have to discern between descriptive and the prescriptive in stories. In other words, as we're reading the story, there are things that are just telling you what happened. We're not to like go from those who go, go thou and do likewise. But some of them we're supposed to see in the story principles. And here's how you know if I'm gleaning a principle from Scripture that is actually prescriptive. It's prescribing something rather than descriptive. Here's how you know. If it's repeated often and the teaching portion of Scripture gives some clarity. Okay? Now, what's prescriptive out of this is that marriage is a good thing. But, but there's nothing in this where we should go, and, and if the guy isn't acting, like if, if he is not responding, ladies, here's what you need to do. You need to go to his mom's basement where he is staying and playing video games all night. And when he falls asleep sitting on his beanbag chair with Cheetos on his lips and he's holding his video game controller passed out, sneak into the basement and take his socks off. That's how you get a guy. That's a really bad idea. In fact, this may be a bad idea. Because, because what's going on in the story is Ruth is going to do what her mother-in-law says, but she's actually making herself incredibly vulnerable. The reason that Naomi says this is because she knows the character of Boaz from chapter 2. This is not just some guy. She knows that he loves the Lord, that he, will, he has integrity, he will do what is right. And that's why she says to her, listen, whatever he says, do it. But, but the vulnerability is that, that he could receive this as a, a sexual innuendo and act on it and therefore sexually abuse her, rape her. I mean, believe it or not, in the, in the world at this time, there are actually multiple references in Scripture that the fact that the winnowing, winnowing floors were places where prostitutes showed up. He could receive this as Ruth just acting like a prostitute. And he could act on that. Or, or he could see this and, and believe that this was her doing that and therefore ruin her reputation. He, he says later in text, everybody knows your reputation is good. I know what you're doing here. But he also says, but we're going to get you out of here before sun comes up because we don't want anybody else thinking anything weird about this, right? It's the third option that they're hoping for, which is that he goes... I get what you're doing here. My bad. I'm crazy about you too. But, but it's, it's really vulnerable. It's really not prescriptive. And it's really like uncomfortable in the story. So, so scene two, she shows up and she gets involved in it. She went down, verse six, to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law commanded her when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry and went to lie down at the heap end of a heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight, the man was startled, turned over and said, behold, a woman, or behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? Well, duh, dude's asleep, worn out from a day. And all of a sudden he wakes up and his feet are a little cool from the evening breeze. And he's like, I thought I put a cover over this. As he looks down at his feet, there's a lady laying there. Just a dark silhouette, you know, uh, of this woman. And he's startled. He, he just freaks out for a minute. He goes, who are you? That's what you and I would do too. Like, very natural, real story. Uh, and, and she then responds, verse 9. She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Here we go. Ruth does not listen to her mother-in-law here. What Ruth was told to do is that when he is startled and looks and says, who are you? Say, I'm Ruth. Tell me what I should do. That is not what Ruth does. Ruth goes full on throttle. This, and I'm going to explain why it is this. This is a all on straight in your face marriage proposal. This is the small town Bethlehem proposal. She does not wait for him to act. She does not wait for him to court her. She does not wait for him to, they, she's going to bypass all that and go, me and you, we ought to get hitched and we ought to get hitched now. Now, in that culture, that, that could actually mean a sexual encounter right here that would consummate a marriage. They could wake up in the morning and go, we're married. 
That's the way they did it. There was not a ceremony first. There was the act of consummating a marriage. That's the way Hebrew marriages worked, is you would take a couple to a tent, and when they came out in the morning, you had a celebration and a ceremony. And so that's, that's possibly implied in the text that Ruth was open to that. Maybe, maybe not. But she is definitely coming, not saying, I'm a, like, I'm a prostitute, I want to hang with you. She is coming with an agenda saying, I want to get married. What she says is, she says, uh, here, here's the deal. She says, verse uh, 9 again, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. This would be a phrase that was actually used, spread your wings, in multiple ways. We've actually seen it in the book of Ruth. Because in chapter 2, when Ruth was, was kind and gracious, Boaz looked at her and prayed a blessing over her. Chapter 2. And the prayer of blessing that Boaz prayed over her in chapter 2, he said this, The Lord repay you for what you have done. A full reward be given to you by the Lord. And the God of Israel, watch this, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. In other words, he's saying that what you did is you have loved your mother-in-law so well, even though you were an outsider, and you've come to believe in Jehovah, Yahweh God, and you have come under his wings to, to give you refuge. And my prayer for you is that you will find blessing in that. Now, here's exactly what she's looking at him. She is looking at him saying, remember when you prayed that for me? The way God is going to do that is for you to spread your wings and take me into your family. Pull me in. You, Boaz, are the answer to your own prayer for me. That's exactly what she's saying. It's beautiful. And he says, and, and you're a redeemer, which means she could have married other people, but a marriage to other people would have left she and her mother-in-law, especially outside of the position of benefiting from the covenant blessings where God gave families land in Israel. She needed an eligible bachelor who was also an eligible redeemer, a family member who could step into this space and do this because God gave the land he gave to families and it was never to pass to anybody else. They couldn't sell the land. They couldn't it was always supposed to be in the family because it was God's land to begin with. But for Naomi to, to live under the blessing of that, they needed a new family that was still part of their family. And she says, dude, marry me. You're my redeemer. And the beautiful picture here is this moment of proposal, which was the goal of this text. This is why I'm saying if she came with any interest in something happening, it was always in the context of this. The goal here is one man, one woman, one lifetime, giving herself to him and him giving himself to her so that they could they could live happily ever after, and it would work. But what happens is it goes sideways again. Because this whole chapter is in one afternoon and evening. He looks at her and goes, man, I would so do that. But there's actually a family member who's closer who has first right of refusal to the land. Now, now this is, it's weird because we don't live in this culture. But he's like, sweetie, I, I would love to wake up in the morning with us married. But if I do that, that other family member can say, wait a minute, that's, I, I'm the one who have the rights to that land. And the blessings that they are seeking as part of this story would be lost because Ruth and Boaz would be buried, but Naomi's land would be somewhere with somebody else. And he says, so here's what I'm going to do. We're going to go see if that guy will take you in, if that guy will fulfill this deal. And I, I, just like you feel Ruth's heart breaking. You expect this love moment that is full of passion and beauty, right? And it doesn't quite work out that way. <laughs> He's like, I don't know. We'll see in the morning how it works out. It may, maybe, maybe not, you know. And, and I think as hard as it, but, but he is a man of integrity. He's not going to violate God's purpose of God's law in this moment. In this moment, it could be a, a passionate moment. He is going to honor the covenant with God. And you're going to have to come back next week to find out what happens. She wakes up in the morning. He makes sure that her integrity is preserved. By, by get, they wake up before the sun comes up. 
uh, slips out. He gives her six measures of barley, which means this barley is now made cleaned. It's useful. He sends her home with that. So that she, she goes to this woman who was empty and bitter and goes full and, and God is blessing. And, and this third scene is where she then looks at her mother-in-law, Naomi, and Naomi goes, what happened? And her response is, well, interesting you should ask. He said there's a, another potential redeemer. And her mother-in-law, who was hopeless in chapter one, Naomi's hope is growing. She says, let's just sit back and watch. Because this man, Boaz, is not going to let this day, the new day, the dawn that is just breaking, this day be finished without a resolution. End of scene three. Oh, what's going to happen? Well, you got to come back. It's just the deal. Uh, actually, we'll preach a little bit of it on Christmas Eve, and we're going to finish the story on, on New Year's Eve. So you're going to have to come back twice, right? It's the way it's going to have to work. But what we have here is this beautiful moment, and the story is pointing us to something that is rich and beautiful. And so what are the prescriptive things we should get from this? What should we see in the beauty of this story, this, this wonderful moment that's happening? What should we find as, as this, this weird but, but beautiful proposal has jump-started this relationship, and now Boaz is going to be the aggressor. He is now going to pursue her by doing what is right. But you've got to come, come here about that. What are we to see? I, I think we can, we can really glean two beautiful things from this moment in the story that helps us celebrate Christmas, that helps us understand our lives, helps us understand beauty. And the first thing is this, that, that this story really is pointing us to the goodness and God's gift of love and marriage. That, that when God created Adam and Eve, he put two people in the garden, he made them perfect, and he gave them to each other. There was something that was lacking, incomplete, even though they were full image bearers of God, there was something that was lacking, incomplete. And he gives Eve to Adam as this beautiful gift. He gives Adam to Eve, and now they are, the two become one. There is this beauty, and there's something about love in human relationships that, that helps us see the wonder of love and, and the longings of our heart are drawn to this. That, that is a good thing. And, and the way God designed it, that our sexuality is a beautiful gift but it's for a context. And, and, and that marriage is, is a designed covenant that, that is God's purpose for us in ways. Now, what happens as we read this is we watch the stories and the Hallmark movie always ends with the man and woman in love and hopefully married. One of the problems with Hallmark movies is they get the order of sex and marriage mixed up almost every time now. And that's just normative. You can't watch anything, any love story on TV anymore and, or in the movies where that's just not part of the story. It is just accepted that sex is more of a transaction than something that is tied to something deeper. And we have lost the meaning and beauty of the intimacy between a husband and wife. And our culture now doesn't know what to do with it because here's our culture right now. Our culture thinks we are nuts. If you're a follower of Jesus... And, and you really do believe what the Bible teaches about God's purpose for love, sexuality, and marriage. The world thinks you're insane for believing that. And at the same time, they keep making movies that show that the longing of the lost world's heart is for that. Don't ever forget this, church. We cannot, like if we are truly following Jesus, we truly trust him, we truly believe that he is God and he gets to determine the outcomes of our lives and the purpose of our lives, we cannot lose sight of the fact that marriage is a gift that he gave us. And in this gift, he designed it, prescribed it purposefully for one man, one woman, one lifetime, that our sexuality in that context is a gift. Outside of that context, it, it ends up broken. And, and, and we can't act like we can walk away. So many, like even Christian churches are just in the cultural pressure. And this is the challenge for Christianity in our culture right now is, are we going to believe what the Bible says and let God be God? Or are we going to say, nah, people in the culture won't like us if we believe this. 
it's a defining mark in our Christianity because it points us to something rich and beautiful that, that is a gift from God himself. The goodness and beauty of marriage is a, a wonderful thing and God has designed it purposely and, and we should celebrate the goodness of that. Now, what we see then is that marriage is beautiful. We, we, we should celebrate when a couple come together, when marriage happens. We should, we should feel amazing about this story. We should watch our movies and feel warm and fuzzy inside when two people come together. We, sh- we should understand that, that there is something being ignited in our hearts, whether we believe in Jesus or not, that is actually from God. He made you in his image. The ability to love and be loved is part of the beauty of our story. And when our hearts are ignited by the Hallmark movie, it is a sign of the beauty of God's image in you, the wonder of his love for you and the beauty of creation that this idea that he has made is a really good idea. It's for our flourishing, for our good. It's a beautiful thing. But we can't forget that because we are broken, fallen, jacked up people, marriage is really messy. It's really messy. So as much as we want to look at the story and go, uh, you know, fairy tales happen in varying lengths, our marriages are not that. We fight, we argue. The brokenness of my sinfulness shows up in my family and relationships all the time. Marriage is really more two sinners who learn how to repent well. That's, if you want to have a great marriage, if you're married, you want to have a great marriage, let me give you the key. It is not about learning how to love well, it's learning how to repent well. Uh, if you figure out that I am a hot mess and I'm bringing my hot mess into this and now I have somebody who I am one with who knows how awful I am more than anybody else in the world and still loves me anyway, right? I will start understanding what the picture is. And therefore, the most important thing I can do is keep going. I know that my brokenness shows up, but I love you and I'm sorry. I, I, I will do all I can to turn from this and be transformed. And that the love that is given to me continues to be the love of God through my spouse. Actually, it's what's happening in the text. Will you be the way that, will you spread your wings so that this will be the way that God spreads his wings over us in marriage? But, but there's no like, Ruth, it, it ends happy just so you know, okay? If you're wondering, Wonder what next week's gonna be like. Well, you read ahead, but it ends happy. Boaz and Ruth are gonna end up together. But there's no like second Ruth where they tell the story. <laughs> I know, man, I ruined, I ruined the ending. <sighs> but there's no second Ruth where it shows Boaz is now, you know, 10 years older with a wife. He's gained 30 pounds. He's staying in the field till way past dark. She's made his roasted grain is sitting around and he comes home, you know, and, and she's like, What's wrong with you? I've been waiting here with the kids all night. All you care about is your, like, there's no second Ruth, right? That tells us that part of the story. But we know it's, it's there, right? It, it's, it's the way it really works. Marriage is really messy. So we got to remember that the messiness of marriage is the way to remind us that it's a good thing. It's not ultimate. Well, those of us who are married and are still married, your spouse is a gift to you. Some have gone through marriage that were awful and broken in marriages that ended. And God still loves you. He is still for you. And that marriage is not ultimate. And at the end of the day, I have to know that the longings and hopes of my heart are not really going to be fulfilled by my spouse. And the reason for that is that the Bible is always telling us that marriage is the metaphor. Marriage is just a small picture of something better. And so what we see is the, that, that all through the Bible, marriage is a picture of something greater. That, that God chose, as he explained his relationship with his people from the earliest stages in the Bible, to describe it as a marriage. Of, of the idea of God pursuing a people who weren't beautiful, who were a hot mess, and he loved them, and he pours his love into them, and it's his love that turns them into beauties. It, like his, his pursuing covenant marriage love, that he is the husband, and his people are the bride, and his, he loves, like, 
they, they were broken and not, not doing well, but God loved them and pursued them and brought them to an altar and gave himself, and, and he will never be a bad husband. He's going to love, but they are an awful wife. But he pours this, the whole Old Testament just keeps using this metaphor, this picture to say, I made marriage so you would see a little picture of what I'm doing for you when you were my people. And, and it becomes a beautiful picture of marriage, and this marriage becomes uh, the, this, this place where the longings that the stories awaken in our heart are truly fulfilled. And, and God draws us to this. And, and, and it's like God is looking saying, listen, uh, your marriages are just a little picture, a broken, messed up picture of a much better hope, a much, much better fulfilling thing. And that the, the, the image of this, and in fact, listen to this in Ezekiel chapter uh, 16, God is using this metaphor. Now, this whole text is saying, you were a faithless bride. But listen to how he describes his relationship with Israel in the Old Testament. He says, I passed by you again and saw you. And behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you. Now, here's what you got to do. In Hebrew, that phrase, spreading the corner of my garment over you, is the exact same phrase that we just saw spreading my wings over you. It's the same Hebrew phrase. And covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and I entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck, put a ring on your, in your nose and, on your, uh, and earrings on your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothes was of fine linen and silk embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I have bestowed on you, declares the Lord your God. Here's what he's saying. You were a nobody, but the king invited you in and married you, and you became my bride, Israel, and you, you were nothing to behold, but, but the love of God made you beautiful. And now the nations notice your beauty. And it's a marriage. That this, imagine my wife saying, is not about this. This is about that. And so if I'm here and I have a healthy marriage, celebrate that. Pursue it. Find beauty in the goodness of marriage. But if you're here today and your marriage is broken, you were struggling, you, you, you never got married, you, you are, are, are part of a, a marriage that... that actually ended in divorce and, and you feel the weight of the pain of that? Understand that God loves you and he is a way better husband. He is a way better spouse. He, he, he is perfect in his pursuit. And the longings of our heart that the Hallmark stories and movies awaken are only truly fulfilled in that story that marriage, that wedding. And this is why when Jesus, the whole story of Jesus coming and, and being born of a virgin and growing up, like that whole story is the story of the true bridegroom showing up. When we get to the New Testament in Ephesians chapter five says it like this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, now, let's just real quick connect all the dots. Here's Ruth who cleans herself up, puts on the right clothes, and comes to Boaz and makes the proposal. And now the proposal's happening, but there's something, you know, we're gonna have to see what happens next week to see how it comes true. But the picture of the beauty of this, the hope in this, the, 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 the wonder of covenant is wrapped up in this. But that, I'm telling you that that is just a small picture of the God who in Ezekiel said, you were an outsider and you didn't come to me with your clothes cleaned up and your, 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 the oil on your head and, and a bath. You, you were a mess, you were a bloody mess. I cleaned you up picture of forgiveness. I poured oil on your head, a gift of the Holy Spirit. I, I did all this and I brought you to myself in this deep, meaningful relationship. I made you my own. And here in the New Testament, Paul, who writes this using the same language, says, in Christ is the bridegroom. So your marriage, good or bad, is always incomplete and is not where the ultimate Hallmark movies are not going to fulfill the longing of our heart. It awakens them. 
What I want to tell you this morning is that those longings come true in Jesus. That's the point of the story. Those longings that are part of God's beautiful image in you come true in Jesus. Run to him. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are part of his bride. I know for as a dude, it's like, it's a little weird and uncomfortable. But, but there's something beautiful in understanding that he's never going to give up on us. He's going to love you. He's never going to fail you. He is for you. He's never going to ditch you. There's no divorce in the kingdom of God. He, he will keep pursuing you and bringing you back, and he will make you beautiful. There's forgiveness and grace in Christ. The longings that the Hallmark movies and our, our desire to be married are awakened are only really true in Jesus. And he came for that. So run to him, trust in him. Because here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna celebrate communion. For those of us who know Jesus, it's actually a picture of and an invitation to a final meal. And believe it or not, if you know Jesus, if you know the story, the final meal where Jesus is going to enjoy this table with us together, together is called the marriage feast of the lamb. It is the, the, the wedding supper where Christ and his bride sit at the head table. That's us. And today we have a little foretaste of that in remembering communion. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you'll participate in that. And, and so this is our chance. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you haven't trusted him, I want to tell you that God loves you, he is for you, and everything your heart desires to, in, in terms of love are true in Jesus. Run to him today. And we'll have people over here at the end of service who would love to talk to you and, and help you figure out what that looks like. And, and, and pray with you if you have any needs, we'll do that. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to get off the stage. We're going to show you a video of this family that, that we have sent out uh, that we're, that, or that we partner with in Ecuador. And then we're going to celebrate communion. We're going to sing to Jesus. All this is a reminder of the fact that God loves you. He is for you. Amen. Lord, we, we come today thanking you for the beauty of this story, asking you to help us see the wonder in it. Um, we actually see in the Boaz story the fact that he didn't pursue her, the fact that he's not the perfect bride, bridegroom. But Lord Jesus, you are. And so strengthen our marriages and help us to st stay true to what you have taught about this, but at the same time, keep reminding us that the reason it's true is because one man, one woman, one lifetime is actually a picture of a much greater relationship. So draw us to the beauty of your love for us this morning. As we come to the table, may we find grace. In your name I pray. Amen. Hey church family, this is the Myers saying hello from Cedarville University. It's a great Christmas season already. We're looking forward to being able to uh, head back to Ecuador on December 19th. Just wanted to say hello Say hi, everybody. Hello. Hi. And just uh, glad that, uh, for your support and thank you for praying for us and being uh, so concerned about us during this time. We've got three weeks left back in the U.S. and we'll be home for Christmas in Ecuador. Thank you so much for all that you've done for us and for the great hospitality we've received from you throughout our time back here. It's been a great uh, opportunity to see you and enjoy our time together. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. My name's John Park. I'm going to lead us through our communion time. And on the night Jesus gave his life, he gave his disciples this celebration as a way to remember the sacrifice that he made for us and for them. If you're a follower of Jesus and in a right relationship with God, you're invited to partake of this with us. And we also invite you to uh, consider what Jesus have, has done. If you're not a follower of Jesus, consider this Christmas season the sacrifice that he made for your remission of your sins. So before we start, we just invite you to take a moment, repent of any sin in preparation for this meal is an act of remembrance in our Lord's death. And I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians, and then I'll say a, a prayer for us. And after the prayer, when the song starts, we approach the table through the center aisles, and then we exit back to our seats on these outer aisles. 1 Corinthians 11:23. 23. 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we give thanks for this feast of forgiveness in a way to remember what you've done for us, as a way to remember our true Redeemer did not forget us. Emmanuel came. God was with us, lived on earth, lived a perfect life, and gave his body and blood for the remission of our sins. And may we remember this always until you return to take us home. In your name we pray, amen.